We are in Judges chapter 7. This is part 12 of our series through the book of Judges. It's part 12. It's also kind of part 3 of Gideon's life. It's the third week in a row now that we've been talking about the man, Gideon. If you're here for the first time, man, I've got to get you caught up to speed. Uh, so last time in Judges, uh, Israel is disobeying God. They're supposed to finish driving out all the inhabitants from the land. Joshua, he did most of the, the heavy lifting, but not all of it. Part of the reason was given to us in Judges chapter 2 uh, to, to test the subsequent generations to see if they would be faithful as were their fathers in Joshua's day. Of course, they're not. Instead of driving out the inhabitants, they're like, no, nah, we're good. We can just move in right next door to them. And as a result, the Canaanite neighbors introduced them to foreign gods. They turned their hearts away from God. And Israel finds themselves in the dark days of the judges. Their hearts are turned away from God, and God will send foreign nations to oppress them. The people, in response, cry out to God for help. God answers their prayer. He raises up a judge, or, or really a deliverer, and, and that's a better use of the word. It should be the book of the deliverers, because they're all doing this type of deliverance activity including Gideon. And they drive away the foreign threat, and then everything is good for a while. And then they relapse, and they fall back into sin, and the cycle repeats itself, each time getting progressively worse. These are the dark days of the judges. Well, today's story picks up with the life of Gideon. God has just been so patient with him. First and foremost, he hears the people's cry after they've been oppressed for seven years by the Midianites, primarily, the Malachites, people of the East. And uh, Gideon, his faith is, throughout this story, we see it's just, well, a lot like our faith in many ways. It's it's deficient. It's, It's immature. It's lacking. And God gives him lots of reassurance throughout the stories different signs, of course, the most notable one with the fleece. Okay, it worked. Well, then can we do it one more time, but invert it just to make sure. He does. And then they go out to battle. Well, that's where we pick up today. Chapter 7, verse 1. This is part 12 of our study through the book of the Judges. Chapter 7, verse 1. And then Jeroboam, that is Gideon. Remember, that was the nickname that was given to him two Sundays ago, because, or one Sunday ago, let, let, let Baal contend for Baal. Remember that with his father, some of you. Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and camped beside the spring of Herod, and the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. I want to pause there on verse 2. I want to pause there. The Lord raises a problem before Gideon. Maybe a little opposite of what we would have expected. Uh, The issue isn't whether or not God can secure the victory for the people. The issue is Israel's potential response. Given their spiritual waywardness that I described in the introductory comments, 
The concern is, if this massive military force under Gideon defeats the Midianites, they're going to claim credit for themselves, rather than giving the credit to God. They're going to fall into pride. They're going to boast and say, look at us. We did this. We made this happen. That's the chief concern right out of the gate. God provides salvation for the people, and instead of crediting him, they take the credit. They boast in their salvation. And I was thinking about this, and I think instantly what came to mind, because I think sometimes we fall into the very concerns that are presented right here in the first two verses, and sometimes we do it unknowingly, and we would even say, well, I don't characterize myself as being an overly prideful person, but sometimes we are even without knowing it. And so I'm thinking about these first two verses, and my mind immediately goes to Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. It's a verse I'm sure many of you are familiar with. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. A verse I'm sure many of us are familiar with, right? That our salvation is wholly and totally credited to God. Why? Well, in many similar ways, in very similar ways, so that we don't get into trouble. So that at the end of the day, we don't say, yeah, it's because I'm the Christian of the year. That's why. Because that's not true. We're not the Christian of the year. Like, that's why we need a Savior. That's why we need Jesus to even begin with. And here's the potential problem. God knows. They win this battle with too many people. They're going to boast. They're going to take all the credit. Now, I realize a lot of people are very familiar with Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, and yet a lot of people aren't familiar with the first seven verses. Because Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 is kind of like, if this was like linear or like a math problem, we'd have the equation, then we'd have like equals Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, the answer, right? And we'd all be like, yes, I totally agree with that. But the problem is, is many of us, how we form the equation doesn't actually give us the answer that we say we agree with. We say... 3 plus 3 plus 3 equals 14. But it doesn't, right? Some of you are like, 3 plus 3, I think that's 9, right? I get it. Some of you guys are struggling. You're like, okay, can you repeat that? He opens with Ephesians chapter 2, 1 to 7, and, and he really wants to drive home that Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 point. And, and the reason that I'm coming and touching on this, because I, I see like maybe modern day, like, areas where we get into trouble. In Ephesians chapter 2, 1 to 7, he starts off and he says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Like he wants to drive home that Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, it's not you, you can't boast, and the reason why is because you were dead. So the question is, is if you're dead, how do you become alive? Well, that's the whole point, right? You don't. Which is why he says, for by grace you have been saved, right? He wants to make it so clear. that The one word I'm thinking of, if you're taking notes, here's the word that stands out to me. It's inability. Gideon, there is no way you guys are going to win this battle apart from me, but I realize that your forces are so big that should you, you're going to take the credit. I think Paul has a similar 
line of thinking in Ephesians chapter 2, 8 through 9. So he thinks, how can I give like the perfect illustration? And it's one that he's given multiple times. In Romans chapter 6, he says, we are slaves of sin. So how does a slave go from being a slave to not being a slave? Now some of you are like, oh, well, he just runs away, you know. Okay, but that's not how Paul's thinking because in the next verse, he talks about going from being a slave of sin to a slave of righteousness. I.e., in the ancient world, the slaves would be there at the market and they'd come in and then people would have the opportunity to bid at auction and buy them. In other words, you don't just stop being a slave because you decide to. Someone's got to buy you. Or in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul uses the example of blindness, right? If you're blind, how do you decide to see? You're saying, oh, I'm going to wake up tomorrow, and I'm just going to choose to see. No, that's why I said there's one word that really illuminates the issue with Gideon and his army, and it's total inability. And if you don't recognize that inability is the equation that leads to Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, you can easily fall into the same traps that are a concern here. So that's the issue. And so many people will say, I love Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. And then when I, when, they, when I find out how they came to Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, like the answer, how they were led to that equation, they say, oh, well, I heard about Jesus. And then I, I heard about him, I learned about him, I examined the evidence, I made the conclusion, I decided to follow Jesus, I am a Christian. And those aren't false statements. It's just the problem with all those things are the I did this, right? I'm a Christian. I decided to follow Jesus. How do you think you were able to do that in the first place? If you're dead, how do you decide to become alive? If you can't see, how do you decide that you're going to see? If you're a slave at market, how do you take the chains off? And so oftentimes I find, even among evangelical Protestant Christians who would embrace Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, they get into a little bit of a problem because they end up taking more credit than honestly, it's actually even biblical. Yes, you can say, I'm a Christian. I decided to follow Jesus. But the only way that you were able to do that is because God did a miracle first in your life, right? That's why the elder John says, we love him because he first, he loved us first, right? There's a humility in these texts that speak to our total inability. Whether it's on the battlefield against the Midianites or even when it comes to our own salvation. I mean, you look at John chapter 11. Lazarus is dead. And Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. And the dead man is alive. Jesus doesn't say that. Lazarus stays in the tomb. Jesus doesn't make you alive, you stay dead. Yes, you can say, I love Jesus, I decided to follow Jesus, but the only way that was possible is because God did a miracle in your life, first and foremost. I think Jonathan Edwards, let me tell you a little bit about Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards is like John Piper's like hero. So the first time I met John Piper, the only time I met him, first time, maybe there'll be other times, I don't know. I had like, I was so nervous. I, I rehearsed what I was going to say to John Piper. <laughs> I wanted to say John as if I felt that like close with him, but that's, I'm not actually close with him at all. So um, I went up to him because John, Jonathan Edwards is his hero. And I said, Pastor John, I know you never got a chance to meet Jonathan Edwards, but if you can imagine, had you, 
if you can imagine how excited you would have been in that moment, then you can probably imagine how I feel right now meeting you. And, and I think he liked it because he kind of did what some of you just did. He, he laughed. Maybe he was being polite. I don't know. But the reason I mentioned Jonathan Edwards is because Jonathan Edwards just crushes this in this sentence. You have the quote. Can we put it up there on the screen? The Edwards quote, guys? No? The one I texted you? Yeah, I remember I texted you earlier in the week. That's okay. I have it written down here. So here's the quote. It's such a good quote. I'm going to tell you. To illustrate this, right? This is what Edward says. You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. You contribute nothing to your salvation. You want to you illuminate Ephesians 2, 8 through 9? You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Which is a miracle. If you love Jesus, if you're a Christian, if you're walking with Jesus. So I want you to see that because that's the equation. That's how you arrive at the answer. And you say, for by grace you have been saved. And the only reason you're able to say that is because a miracle's taken place in your life. Just like the miracle that took place in the life of Lazarus, the dead man who was called forth by the living God in John chapter 11. It is important we think big thoughts about God. It is important that we think small thoughts about ourselves because in failing to think correctly, we run into the risk that we're dealing with here in Judges chapter 7. You guys go out there on the battlefield and you wipe them up, you're going to forget all about me. You're not going to need me. You're going to take the credit. It's going to be about you. See, we have this natural proclivity to credit what should be to God to us, and this is pride. It's something that's fueled by the society in which we live in today, which praises the self-made man, which values individualism, which emphasizes self-sufficiency, a need for no one and no help. I got this. That's what's in play here. And if you're not needy for God, if you're not desperate for God, you run the risk that God is pointing out to Gideon in chapter 7, verse 2. There's the quote. There it is. We'll drive on verse 3. I think we've thoroughly squeezed verses 1 and 2. So here it is, verse 3. Now therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, whoever is fearful and trembling... Let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many, too many people. Take them down to the water and I will test them for you there. And any one of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, shall go with you, and any one of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue, as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink, and the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. 
But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the three hundred men who lapped, I will save you. And give the Midianites into your hand, and let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men, and the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. Imagine how Gideon was feeling right now. If he was afraid before, he's got to be afraid now. Initially, he sees two-thirds of his troops leave. 22,000 men leave. It must have been shocking for him. I think it also serves as a reminder. I mean, if I'm getting, I'm thinking, God, what are you doing? This makes zero sense. In those moments when things make zero sense to you, just remember what the prophet Isaiah says, Isaiah 55, right? It doesn't have to make sense to you, his ways. They're above your ways, his thoughts above your thoughts. It's okay if it doesn't make sense to you. Still scary, okay? Just being honest, I, I would not have gotten it. Like, And then he says, yeah, you still got too many. We go down to the water, we filter them out. Now you've got 300 more. It would have seemed insane. I've got 300 guys, and you want us to go up against an enemy who, oh, by the way, we haven't been able to do jack against for seven years? You got That would have seemed insane. I mean, if Gideon got to have his way, I'm sure he would have wanted more troops, not less troops. And I would have been right there with Gideon. I would have wanted more troops. I wouldn't have wanted less troops. More troops would have made me feel more self-sufficient. More troops would have made me feel more secure. And I like feeling secure. And I like feeling self-sufficient. And I like having contingency plans. And I like having backup plans. I like those things. Not bad things. But don't miss the opportunity that's going to be created here. Opportunity to praise God, to thank God. Despite this seeming insane, this is the best plan. God is going to create a situation in which they really need him. And it's a blessing when God does that. Might seem really, really scary, but it's a blessing. God's actually going to be doing them a favor. He's not just going to be delivering them from the physical threat from the Midianites, but he's going to be protecting them from the real threat. You say, the real threat? The Midianites are the real threat. Nah. That's the physical threat. The real threat that he's protecting them from is from sin and pride and self-sufficiency and arrogance, lest they fall back into the pit from which he's already pulled them out from these last seven years. Still scary. A little bit. So the early issue that we looked at was pride, arrogance, smugness that would no doubt result, that would come about, Israel boasting their own accomplishments. Boom, we dealt with that. We got 300 guys. That's not happening. But now here's another problem that's entered 
induced in the text, and the issue is really Gideon's faith. I've been hard on Gideon the last two weeks, but if I'm with Gideon right now, we got 300 Joes there on the field of battle. I, my faith might be a little deficient too right now. And so that's the problem now. Gideon's faith or lack thereof. Uh, you think he might be a little afraid? Oh, yeah. He's afraid. And the text clarifies this for us. Notice verse 9. That same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp of Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. <clears throat> God doesn't wait for Gideon to protest and say, hold on a second, can we do that fleece thing one more time? Because i got 300 guys. I'm not really sure if this is what I'm supposed to do. Uh, God doesn't even wait for him to protest. He introduces this, this hypothetical clause, which really isn't hypothetical. If you're afraid, take Pura, your servant, go down and overhear this conversation, right? And we say hypothetical, but it's not really hypothetical because he obviously takes him up on it. God knows all things. He knows Gideon's faith is weak. He knows Gideon is scared. But God's already designed a cure for Gideon. He's got a cure for him and his deficient faith, his weak faith, his immature faith that Sometimes we have in common with Gideon at different points in our life when we face monumental obstacles, when we're backed into a corner. Yeah, sometimes, sometimes we have even a persistent faithlessness as well. But God's got a cure. God's got a cure for Gideon. It's going to work. Some of you are like, God's got a cure for... You know what? I, I could use a cure right now because the more you talk, the more I'm like, yes, I am very much like wherever he's at right now in this story, that's like where I'm at right now. I'm dealing with some deficient faith. Like, I want to believe, but man, I'm struggling. So, so whatever cure, I want to know about it. What's the cure here? Hook me up with that, Joe. And the answer is, is God is the cure. God is going to show him a conversation that's going to encourage him. It's going to encourage him because it's a conversation, as we'll see, that could only take place if God was really in it, if God was really engineering this. Some of you say, man, I, I need more faith. My faith is just really, really weak. It's really, really deficient. I need more faith. Like Gideon, what's the solution? God, you said God's the cure, God's the solution. Okay, what does that look like practically? You can say that, but what does that look like practically? You have deficient faith? Okay, how is it strengthened? And I would argue it's strengthened, it's going to be strengthened the same way it is for Gideon from hearing. From hearing? Yes, from hearing. Have you not heard? Have you not heard the Apostle Paul? Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the Word of God in Christ. Now, this is contextually a saving faith that Paul writes about, but I think it's certainly can also serve and strengthen and embolden our faith in God as well when we are reminded of who He is. Gideon's about to be reminded of who He is. 
He has been reminded of multiple times. He's first called by God. Remember, he's a little hesitant. So what does he do? He wants a sign. He says to the angel of the Lord, stay here just for a quick second. I need to go get you a present. Goes, gets the food, comes back. Here's the present. Says, put it down on the rock. Puts it down on the rock. Pour the broth on it. Okay, pour the broth on it. Angel of the Lord takes his staff, touches the, the food. Boom, it just engulfs in flames. Angel vanishes. Boom. All right, right? What did he get? He got that assurance. Because his faith is, is weak. His faith is deficient. But then it, it went on from there, right? The people want him dead. Somehow he obeys God, tears down the, the pagan altar statue in his own hometown and survives that. Not only does he survive it, but the Spirit of God comes and clothes him as we saw last week, which enables him literally, the men in his town want him dead. And the next second, like a hot minute later, they're coming to serve in his army. But that's still not enough for him. So he does the whole little gambit with the fleece, right? Puts the fleece out. I want the ground dry and the fleece wet. Let's invert that. Okay, just in case it didn't work the first time, can you do it again? And here, his faith is weak again. Right? It makes me think of the the man in Mark 9, right? He says, Jesus, if, if if you can heal my son, please. He says, if I can heal your son, he says... Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Like, God, I've, I, I believe you, I trust you, but like there are elements right now in my life going on that I'm just struggling with, right? I want to believe, but I've got some immature faith. I've got some deficient faith, and I, I need to be strengthened. How does that happen? And I'll tell you what, I think it happens even right now when you're hearing a story like this to point you back to God. I said from the very beginning, God is the answer. God is the cure. Oh, I, 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 my prayer, even right now in this moment, that some of you who are going through things like this, that your faith would be strengthened in hearing this story. Because this story ultimately is pointing you back to God. It's reminding you of God. Every incident that Gideon has, every sign he asks for, is about reminding him of who God is. That's right, right? He's the God who can vaporize this meat and chicken soup I poured out, Right? He's the God that can bring the men to come to fight with me when they wanted me dead a a few minutes earlier. He's the God that can make the ground dry, the fleece wet, the fleece dry, the ground wet. That's right. That's who he is. That's my God. Same God today. We sang a song about that, right? He stayed the same through the ages and never changed, right? Same God today. So he goes down and he hears the conversation. He goes down and hears a conversation. Verse 12. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. They got 300 dudes. And their camels were without number. As the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold... A man was telling a dream to his comrade, and he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream. And behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell, and it turned it upside down so the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. And as soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. Like, thank you, God. This is exactly what I need to hear, God, right? He worshipped. His faith is strengthened just as God had promised. 
And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. You wonder. How does the Midianite even know Gideon's name? Or, or why does why does the tent represent Midian? Or why does he interpret the dream negatively from the Midianite point of view? Like, why could the cake of bread not represent the Midianite forces and the smash tent the Israelite camp? Why indeed? God is exercising his own sovereign control over these events. That's why. At least that's how Gideon sees it. That's why he praises God. If this was just happening randomly, like why praise God? But he praises God because he knows this dream and the interpretation of this dream is linked directly to God. There's no other way. You know, I hear people all the time, they describe a, a passive God I used to be guilty of this. And when I say a passive God, I, I hear things like, oh, well, God, you know, he's just, he's such a great God, and yeah, he's totally sovereign over all things, but he would never force himself into the lives of human beings because he respects them and their own will so much that wouldn't be fair or right, and he is such a gentleman, he wouldn't do that. And they really argue more philosophically than they do biblically. I used to do this all the time. But the problem is, is when you look at the stories of the Bible like this and countless others, you see God doing whatever God wants to do. God has planted this dream in this Midianite's mind. Right? He doesn't say, oh man, I just I respect his, his will so much, that would be wrong of me to do that, so I'm just going to roll the dice, hope he eats the the, you know, the wrong pizza night to have that exact dream. And I, I really hope this other Midianite who will talk to him at the exact same time and, and just happen to give maybe that exact same interpretation that I need him to give. Pfft. Of course not. God's engineered this to happen. God's planted that dream in that man's mind. God's given that man this interpretive gift. That's how Gideon sees it. If Gideon doesn't see it that way, why does Gideon bother praising God? He praises God because he knows this is no random event. This is God. God's making this happen. Because this is exactly what Gideon needs. Because Gideon's like us a lot of times. His faith is weak and deficient. Especially when, I don't know, you've got 300 guys and you're going against an army that even their camels you can't count. God does this today, just as he did this here in chapter 7. It's being done for the good of his people, for the glory of his name, as he does all things. I, I, I say this because so many of us have such a small view of God. And then we wonder why our faith is weak. If, if I had a small view of God, I think I'd be much more inclined to have more deficient faith, more weak faith, more immature faith than I already do. I don't want you to have a small view of God. That's incorrect. That's unbiblical. I want you to have a big view of God. Because He's a big God. And this is no problem for Him.
And he divided the 300 men, verse 16, and he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, look at me. Look at me. Look at me. And do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me Then blow the trumpets also on every side of the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Got it? For the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon! Every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. And when they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Bethshita towards Zerah, as far as the border of Abel, Maloah by Taboth. Here it is. God doing what only God can do. They stand there, they all yell, a sword for God and for Gideon. The, the reference here to sword, it's figurative. They, they are essentially repeating his instructions uh, back in verse 18. When he says, for the Lord and for Gideon, the sword for the Lord and for Gideon, the battle for God and for Gideon. But the irony of this statement, they're not carrying a sword with them. That's the irony of it. No swords, trumpets, and they've got torches and jars, and then they pull the torches out of the jars, and they're just yelling and screaming and hooting and hollering. That's it. It is psychological warfare at its best, and yet, make no mistake, God's doing this. God's doing this. Verse 22. The Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. The Lord is doing this. Yes, this is psychological warfare at its best, but understand, this is God's doing. This is not a masterpiece of human ingenuity. And it works. God does what only God can do. We continue in verse 23. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. Gideon sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them. Cut off their retreat, paraphrase. As far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan, so all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they captured the waters as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan, and they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. Then they pursued Midian, and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. They have achieved the divinely intended goal with 300 troops. Amazing. And yet, 
Gideon appears to forget the point of God's instructions at the beginning of this chapter. Instead of operating by faith, instead of seeking guidance from God, he starts relying on himself, on his own ingenuity, on his own human strength, mobilizing his reserve troops. God didn't give that order. The, the coward Gideon now becomes confident, very similar to the story of Barak and Deborah. Barak says, I'm not going to go fight those guys, Deborah, unless you come with me. But then once he sees the battle's going well and they actually got this, he becomes a little bit more confident. He directs this mopping up operation, cutting off the retreat of the Midianites. Works very effectively, but from this point forward, the voice of God will become a distant memory, stilled, not heard for the remainder, most of the remainder of Gideon's narrative. The Spirit of God, which brought the courage to fight a far greater military force, now has seemed to slip Gideon's mind altogether. He has forgotten so quickly. You know, some of the best moments I find that some of the best moments of, of spiritual growth and feeling near to God are the ones in which we desperately need God. For when self-confidence blossoms too big, we forget Him and our original need for Him. You know, there's a few relationships which I'd say being needy or codependent are healthy. Usually if you're needy in a relationship, you're really codependent, you're super clingy, we'd say that's probably kind of dysfunctional, kind of unhealthy. We would, with the exception of one. With the exception of one. You know where I'm going, right? And that's your relationship with God. It's super healthy to be really needy, to be really codependent, to be really clingy to God. And the reason is, is because that, that makes God look great. It doesn't make you look great. It makes God look great. Like, I need God. But Gideon's getting away from this, right? He's like, oh, we got this, right? He pulls his reserve troops up. He tells them to cut off the escape routes. He's got this. The coward starts becoming more and more confident. But with that, and in those moments, we run the risk of, well, we don't need God anymore. We don't need Him. I need Him when I'm, I'm going through a really difficult time in my life. But then once that difficult time is over, we tend to forget, like Gideon. And it's not because when that difficult time is over that we need him any less. In fact, I'd argue we need him just as much after the battle as before. The need is still there. But it's just like situations like these, what they do is they force us to see what's actually there. When you got 300 Joes and you're fighting an army of thousands of tens of thousands, man, you need God. You're scared. Whatever that maybe personal situation is that you're going through or that you've gone through. But then when things start going well, we become self-sufficient. And that's really the point of this story. The concern from the very beginning is that they're going to take the credit. The concern from the very beginning of the story is they're going to brag, they're going to boast as if they had this in the bag the whole time. And it's interesting because I see 
people a lot more consistently when things are going well in their life. When things aren't going well in their life, I see people a lot more, right? It's like every Sunday, man, they're in here. Every small group, they're there. Man, their Bible reading time, their prayer life, it is off the charts. Because I got 300 Joes and they're fighting against a Midianite army of tens of thousands. And they know there's no way they're getting through this next week or this next month, or whatever the challenge is that's presented in front of you, there's no way you're getting through it apart from God. And then once the storm passes, we make the terrible error of thinking the war is over, and we go into this peacetime mode in which all things I just mentioned now become less important, and we are lured into this false confidence like Gideon. And we beat them. And prop our feet up and take it easy now. That's exactly what the devil would want you to do. <sighs> Don't make that mistake. How do I guard against that? I think you guard against it practically through prayer. God, help me to need you just as much today. Now that things are going so much better than they were last week, help me to need you just as much today as I did last week, right? When Everything was upside down in my life. Lord, don't. Don't let me get too big for my own britches, Lord. Don't let my idea of self-confidence or self-sufficiency make me forget you and no longer need you. You battle in prayer. You battle with other people in your life corporately. They pull you back to the path when you start to, to wander. When they start to notice those things that's why I emphasize small groups all the time. You, you need to be a part of a small group. It's okay if it's not at this church. It just needs to be at some church. It's great if you, you meet together on your dorm with people, but you need to be meeting with other people, right? Of different stages of life. You need that, right? Because you're just as susceptible to having this little overconfident moment like Gideon is as he is. You think, oh, well, that was Gideon. That wouldn't happen to me. Of course it happens to you. It can happen to an 18-year-old freshman. It can happen to a pastor. It can happen to everybody. That's why we need our brothers and sisters. Oh, yeah, it is sweet. Difficult, but sweet when we face those moments, those challenging circumstances in our life. They tend to be some of the most fruitful spiritual moments of growth because we just need Him so much. And once again, it's not an issue that we didn't need Him before. We just need Him the whole time. We need Him the whole time. But moments of difficulty just help us to see so much more clearly how small we are, how big our God is, and how much we need Him every single day. Oh, that we might have a more humble view of ourselves. Oh, that we might have a more exalted view of God. That's my prayer. As the team comes, I want to pray for us, guys. Jesus, Jesus, help us to be needy for you. Help us not to forget you. I pray our faith would be strengthened by hearing stories like this, seeing you do things that are so undeniably true.
Those of us, Lord, who are battling with deficient faith, with immature faith, with weak faith, right now, help us to trust you. Give us faith, God, to trust you. Embolden our faith by stories like this, to trust you. And Lord, protect us. Protect us from this end-ending story of Gideon where he seemingly forgets the very instructions and point from the very beginning of why not to take so many troops with him. God, protect us from pride and arrogance and sin, our real enemy that we face. We need you. We always do. So help us. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.